Welcome to the latest EF episode of our Evidence Into Action podcast. We explore the most important topics to schools of today, and we speak to experts in the field, both nationally and internationally. And of course, we speak to expert school leaders and teachers. This particular episode focuses on the crucial topic of special educational needs in mainstream schools. We'll speak to three brilliant school leaders We'll tackle the current issues that relate to SEM provision. We'll explore some specific challenges and opportunities. We'll dig into some guidance and some practical approaches that school leaders, SENCOs and teachers can pick up and apply and see reflected in their best practice. And we'll also explore the area of adaptive teaching. Now, I'm going to introduce um, my co-host, Kirsten Mould, who is... Um, former Senko herself, so this is a very special topic. Um, Kirsten, over to you. Thanks, Alex. Yes, Kirsten Moll from um, and Senior Content Manager for EEF, really looking at translating evidence for the profession. But Alex is right. This is a this is a kind of a love of mine. This time last year, I was assistant head at a secondary school and Senko, and I think being a Senko is one of those really challenging and diverse roles knowing the students was absolutely core for me and I guess this time last year I would be in the midst of thinking about year six transition and getting to know those future students asking what they love as well as all of the things that we could maybe put in place to support I might be walking a student around the uh, exam hall just just to kind of visualize their seat um, and thinking about those access arrangements and interventions and maybe priorities for staff CPD next year None of these things are specific to SEND, are they? They're, you know, things that we do for for all of our students. And I think working with those young people and families, first and foremost, was just a real privilege to that role. And we're talking about a huge amount of pupils, aren't we? You know, 1.5 million across England. And, you know, this is not a homogenous group. Let's recognise that right, right at the start. So recognising a huge number of challenges, but also enormous potential and looking forward to getting getting into the conversation. Yeah, that sounds great. And I think for me, um, you know, you see some debates that attend SEND and inclusion, and sometimes they just don't get into the nuance. They don't get into the, the realities and the complexities. And I think um, that's something that I think we'll enjoy being able to take the time um, to get into in this podcast. I'm delighted to introduce my first guest, Gary Orbin. Gary's actually an EEF associate. Um, he's worked with us for a long time now, so I'm sure we'll unpick. And also, he's head of SEND for Future Academies in London. Uh, Gary, great to chat to you again. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, the work you've done at the EEF with the EEF and also um, your role um, for Future Academies? Yeah. Hi, Alex. It's great to be on the podcast. Um, I was the content specialist for SEND last year with the EEF. So my job was really taking the SEN and mainstream guidance report that was um, released in March 2020 and trying to support more schools and school leaders and teachers and SENCOs and TAs to understand some of the recommendations within it and to think about the implications there um, with it as well. And I had the great pleasure of talking to lots of schools along those lines. And I think one of the aspects of that role was that you still had that foot in in school, but in this year particularly, you've been, um, I think mired is too negative a word, but you've been kind of immersed, I think maybe that's the best term, you've been immersed in, in the work and supporting schools across your trust and a bit beyond as well. What are the current, as you see it, some of those major challenges and, and opportunities at the moment in terms, in relation to supporting pupils that send um mainstream provision so yeah the, my bread and butter is still you know working very closely with senkos and school leaders and being in and around schools and um it's the thing that fills me with great hope is i've never met a single school leader or teacher or teacher who didn't want school to work for pupils and doesn't want school to work for all pupils um sometimes where there's res- reticence or hesitance um it's almost uh, always because of a lack of um feeling staff feeling that they can do it confidently do it well that they don't feel undermined that they have the support so there's always a way forward um because essentially the adults want it to happen and the pupils want want to do well in school but the context is challenging at the moment alex as you've alluded to there i think um the, the the national census data backs up what I see in our schools and what um what the other school leaders tell me about there being more pupils with send more pupils with need 
than there were a few years ago and more pupils with more complex needs. And for some people that looks like not coming to school at all. And for some people that looks like not engaging with the learning in the way that we would wish them to for the, you know, for their needs. So, so I think there's a real pressure on school leaders, teachers, TAs to try and, you know, support all those pupils. There's clearly a great desire, but inevitably we're, we're, there is a finite level of resource, it feels like, and the reality is that sometimes. And where you want to work with partners in order to get it right, be that a, the local special school or AP or a, a specialist teacher from the local authority, or even getting a privately bought educational psychologist. I mean, there's, there's a, it feels like the lack of provision in many, many places, in many, many areas. And that's, that, that, that brings challenge. There's also, um, in terms of um, staff, um, recruiting and retaining teaching assistants feels harder than it used to be, especially in certain areas, especially for certain roles, and especially where we want those people to work with com- with children who've got more complex needs than perhaps that role would have would have required uh, 10, 20 years ago. So, so it's it, it's hard, and EHCPs are sometimes a really helpful thing to have. Um, sometimes uh, you know only when done well, only when written well and implemented well. But um, where you can't get an EHC needs assessment responded to in the way you'd like, or in the you know the time frame you need, it's just lots lots of pressures there. And 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 there's there's no easy answers clearly. And um, what but you know that the the, the, the adult the, the solution lies in the the children, the families, and the adults in school all, all working well together and relying on that external support where it's there. So there is hope, but but real challenge clearly. And when people talk about high expectations and um, you know challenging curriculum, and that's the sort of educational landscape which is absolutely right. And I don't disagree with any of those messages, but that doesn't make it easy. And that you know that doesn't that doesn't offer a magic solution. It's not just about um, aiming high, is it? It's about aiming high and having the skill to really embed reasonable adjustments within those high expectations. So that so that every child can succeed and can feel their own success and can feel that sense of belonging and warmth when they walk into a school classroom or, or through the school gates. Thanks, Gary. I, I feel like you've just characterised the educational landscape really in a quite profound way. Actually, kind of the challenges and and a lot of the areas of kind of interacting challenge and, and difficulty and, and there's just so much in there. Uh, and you said that there are no simple solutions here. This is complex problems require complex solutions. Um, I know that, and in, in, you know, you know, done some work around the EEF guidance report on special educational needs in mainstream schools, published back in 2020, and you're instrumental in developing real teacher-friendly, senko-friendly, school-friendly um, resources. Um, what would you say about the kind of recommendations and, and how they offer practical ways forward for schools within this kind of you know, challenging context you've characterised? So we know that um, SEND can't be just, can't lie at the door of the SENCO only and everything that comes from the DfE or from Ofsted or whoever tells us quite rightly that every teacher is a teacher of SEND and every leader should therefore be leading with SEND in mind and, and you know, all the rest of it. But actually, it feels quite mystical sometimes, send to a lot of, especially to people who aren't the Senko. And a lot of people, I think, are a bit inclined to keep send at arm's length, not because they don't care about these children and young people, but because it feels um, incredibly technical and tricky. And sometimes it is, but... um, but where um, if we're giving solutions to teachers that ask them to do, you know, to employ 100 strategies at once in their classroom, then clearly we're not going to get anywhere. If we ask um, uh, teachers to um, find teaching approaches that require an educational psychologist level of doctorate qualification in order to understand, then we're in big trouble because you know, not everyone can have that. So what we have to hope is that actually these people we have in school called teachers and TAs and, and school leaders, especially in the mainstream context, um, that, that they can have the answers at their fingertips to meet the needs of people to send. And that's where I think that the SEN and mainstream guidance report does a really good job because without oversimplifying complex things, it gives a way forward that is primarily about things that are within the gift of teachers and leaders to be able to drive in classrooms and across schools. 
And rather than suggesting 100 things, it says, here are five recommendations. Now, again, not to oversimplify, it's not, you know, I know these recommendations very well. It's not everything you'll ever have to do when trying to drive send outcomes in your school. But if you're a, a principal or a senior leader who isn't a Senko and feels a bit, you know, arm's length about doing a really good job by those pupils, then actually it's quite it's quite empowering, I think. So it talks to, to schools about, you know, their school environments, about developing understanding of needs about teaching and then about interventions as the sort of top up in some cases or in others, the foundation, but but alongside teaching, not instead of. And then about work with teaching assistants that builds on on the wider guidance report from the EF about about making best use of TAs. So so I think there's real real hope there in that it, it talks the language that won't um, uh, make sense feel even more sort of mystical and mysterious, but actually empowers leaders and teachers and those in classrooms to go, OK, you know, I can think about this within my practice. So. So there is hope there. And we don't always get on to teaching, I think, around SEND. We think, you know, the conversation is too often about some of the things, some of the very real frustrations I've mentioned about lack of spaces in a special school or about um, waiting times for assessment of, of, you know, four-year waiting times for autism assessment. All these things are very real and very serious and have real implications. But it talks more about things that schools can control. And I think that's its greatest strength. Thanks, Gary. And... Yeah, I'm really interested in this point about this mystical landscape within SEND and people really wanting to get it right, but also wanting that kind of imagining they need to have that technical expertise and so on. And there'll be many school leaders listening to this podcast who really care passionately. And I think you you describe that warmth and, and welcoming environment for our schools but perhaps they feel unskilled in this area and maybe they, you know, interacted with the EEF guidance report, but what advice would you have for them for maybe collaborating with teachers in their schools and, and moving that forward? So I think, I think leaders in schools should be reassured, as I've said, by the fact that it starts with what teachers already know. So that's a line straight out of the guidance report is that especially around those teacher, those decisions that teachers make in classrooms, actually meeting the needs of pupils of SEND starts with what teachers already know, doesn't start with them having to have a master's in SEND. It starts with all that information is really useful and sometimes essential. Actually, it starts with what teachers already know. So as a leader trying to develop um, SEND provision and, you know, therefore develop teacher practices, actually, it's what what teachers already know. And the conversation and the, uh, whether it's a training or a bit of coaching that the teacher needs is unlikely to start with um, speech and language 101 it's likely to start with what do we know good teaching is and then it's about not throwing out those principles of good teaching when you're working with a child who's neurodivergent but thinking about how do I know, how do I um, manipulate or put some nuance on what I know and what to do already to better meet the needs of that child it's not about learning a new language it's about adapting the language of teaching and learning that I'm already really familiar with and making sure that it meets the needs of, of that of that um, of that child or that or that class so so leaders should feel empowered for that reason I feel for if they look at the SEN and mainstream guidance report they won't see things that upon which they're lost immediately and clearly, there are pupils with more complex needs. There are pupils with very bespoke and individualized strategies we need to apply. But actually, being able to say to all of our teachers and TAs, here's a core of evidence-informed recommendations, including ones that relate to teacher practices, I think that's that's really empowering. And when you put that alongside the effective professional development mechanisms, so thinking actually in what I'm saying about SEND, am I building staff knowledge about, for example, some of the teaching approaches that, that can work? Am I motivating staff to make those adjustments to their teaching where it makes sense to or where it's needed? Are we developing those techniques through some effective uh, modelling in a session or are we building our own video exemplification of some of the most effective teachers for people who send in our school and sharing those well? Are we giving staff the chance to see each other and give feedback to one another about how they're meeting the needs of pupils? And, and so just to build that, you know, are we build, developing those teaching techniques in our school? And then are we embedding practice? So SEND, I think too often is something that the Senko is given 20 minutes on September the 1st to go and speak to the school staff and no one sees the Senko again for the rest of the year. And actually, are we giving those bits of change that we want in school the chance to be successful in reality by embedding them over time, by reinforcing, by praising, by acknowledging and by, by giving really good feedback that, that brings teacher practices forwards? 
That's a really rich answer, Gary. And, and just as you mentioned, those mechanisms from the EFPD guidance report, weaving that in and, and threading that through PD provision across the board. Let's walk that into the classroom then. So we have this phrase, don't we, from the code of practice around every teacher is a teacher of send. And, you know, just maybe talk to us about in terms of teachers in the moment in the classroom what can we be doing to, to meet the needs of our pupils? Yeah, so, so it's first probably worth outlining the limitations of, of, of any sort of, you know, bit of external evidence in that, you know, children with SEND, just like all children, are, are, uh, do have their own idiosyncrasies and uniquenesses, and it's about knowing them individually, isn't it? But actually, where the EF have taken the best systematic reviews, where the evidence um, is built from a cohort of pupils with SEND. It doesn't go into individual need types, and that's a limitation. But it says for pupils, not just, you know, all pupils, but pupils with special education needs in particular, these are the things that have shown to have an impact, not in lab settings, but in real classroom settings, to, to support them to make greater academic progress. So there's this this five approaches then that were found to have a good degree of evidence from the systematic reviews, and those are explicit instruction, cognitive and metacognitive strategies, scaffolding, flexible grouping, and using technology. So that doesn't mean that that's sort of just, you know, there's a list to give to teachers, off we go. We talked about effective PD already, and clearly these, these messages need to be um, given sensibly and given well, and we need to support teachers to understand what we mean by these things. And partly that's returning to the evidence base a bit in the guidance report. But explicit instruction, for example, where, where you know our, our learning is really led by our expert teachers. And if a pupil with special educational needs is more likely to get lost in a sort of lectured approach, we're not saying that, but we're saying let's be really clear about our teaching. Let's build in lots of opportunities for that sort of adaptive teaching element, that formative assessment. And then let's 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 amend and reteach and go and work with small groups where needed to re you know, to reteach these things. But it's Led by the teacher and then it's not just off you go and sink or float but there's that guided practice as a really important step in the middle and so a lot of teachers who are maybe listening to the podcast who are well versed in teaching and learning and well versed in um, working with training teachers and that kind of thing that will be nothing new and actually it's a lovely metaphor of automatic doors where automatic doors are useful for everyone coming out of a supermarket but they're particularly useful for people who might have a disability for example and that is a metaphor for the things that we're encouraging that the evidence encourages teachers to do in their in their classrooms things that will be broadly useful for all i.e a bit of a model a live modeling a guided practice before the independent practice broadly useful for all they will have particular benefits for our pupils with send it also just to raise about scaffolding scaffolding i think we think of as death by worksheet a little bit and i really like the um uh, the, the the evidence review from the EEF talks about scaffolding and as, as a broader um, um, uh, with a, has a broader definition of scaffolding. So scaffolding being potentially um, verbal, visual, or written, and actually having a task planner for a child. Um, it might be we notice that a child is struggling to get started with their work or struggles to remember the steps. So we create something in the moment there based on that need at that time. Or it could be that how do we offer scaffolds in a way which aren't? You've got sense there's your worksheet and that child just sort of identifies as I'm the sort of worksheet kid. Actually, how can we do that by going, well, here's a few of these scaffolds around on desks and they're there for anyone who might use them, but let's try not to if we don't need them. Or let's do it on the on the class whiteboard as a whole rather than singling out the four pupils in the class with on the send register is always needing the scaffold when actually sometimes they might not so um so yeah there's and so those five strategies i think offer offer real hope there they offer a, a, a an appropriate level of simplicity where they talk the language of teaching and learning as long as people see of course there's the need to implement them well to be reflective about their um, impact and to, to to make adjustments as needed and you describe a really recognisable high quality teaching repertoire, don't you there? And I remember when when that guidance report came out, we had a group of fantastic SENCOs from across the country really inputting into that and, and talking about that toolkit that all teachers have. But actually, sometimes just needing to sharp, sharpen some of those tools and to, as you described before in, in that effective PD, really thinking about threading that through and re-highlighting some of those strategies. Um, but yeah, just prioritizing those familiar techniques it's very easy to talk about send as a distinct issue but we're talking about that high quality teaching aren't we yeah and looking at something like metacognition so in that second um of the five approaches is cognitive and metacognitive strategies so what i'd say, talk to teachers about is cognitive strategies for me is quite a um 
quite an academic way potentially of saying ways to support pupils to think about and remember content. So actually, if more yeah. of our teachers say more often things like you might remember this by and then the examples given in the guidance report are things like a mnemonic or a Freya model or a really good knowledge organizer that's sort of presented helpfully and, you know, um, uh, as succinct as it can be. Um, actually, these are things that, again, should be recognizable to many teachers. And even if it's not those three specific things, getting the habit of thinking, I probably need to give an explicit way for a child to remember this. So I might say often in my teaching, you might remember this by. And likewise with metacognition, the, the, you know, right at the top of the teaching and learning toolkit from the EEF. And similarly, the evidence around SEND is very um, strong about um, uh, about using metacognitive approaches. So, again, we're not having to learn a different language. We're not having to do totally different things. We might just think, how do I do this uh, even more regularly, even more consistently and with a more explicit focus for those pupils with SEND? But I'm not having to do something that is totally different to what I might need to do for um, for, for other learners. Yeah, that's a great point. If I think, Gary, about how you just characterise that familiarity with those tools often couch behind kind of academic or complex terms, scaffolding, explicit teaching, cognitive, metacognitive strategies. So, you know, as a former English teacher, I think about those strategies by a writing task. So if I want them to you know, do a good Shakespeare essay, I need to think about the vocabulary they use, and that would be a cognitive strategy to teach some of that vocabulary and, and work some, on some sentences with them. But the metacognitive strategy is about planning, monitoring, and evaluating and help them steer strategically that essay. So maybe a checklist or a planning frame or, or, or both of those things. So these are all, in teaching vocabulary, using planning frames, using checklists, these are all familiar tools and resources Sometimes we just need to make sure that we help teachers see those resources underneath and, and the principles that underpin them and the evidence that supports them. Um, I, I think what you've brilliantly done is, is made a big complex area, almost teaching and learning, into something that's accessible and feels manageable. And actually that is what special needs in mainstream is about in terms of high quality teaching i've got I, i've got a challenging like final question then we started with this big picture you've, you've just covered pretty much all of teaching and learning in, in about three or four minutes um can you give us a quick takeaway that a busy teacher could use the ef send guide report and its associated tools to start putting these insights into action yeah, I think um, the so there's lots on the SEN and mainstream guidance, uh, SEN and mainstream page of the EEF website, which I think is helpful for teachers. And if people need a bit of a refresh of what those five teaching approaches mean, or at least what the EEF mean when they use those terms, then there's some, um, some there's, a, there's a sort of poster that summarizes those if that's useful. But I think the most useful thing is uh, there's a reflection tool on the SEN and mainstream page of uh, the EEF website, which breaks down each of those five into two or three sort of prompt questions. So around explicit instruction, for example, the first one is to what extent do I use clear and succinct language in my teaching, checking pupils' understanding frequently? So if the evidence suggests that that's an approach that's going to be supportive of pupils' ascend, it just breaks that into some reflection questions that speak the language of teaching and learning. So if you are a classroom teacher wishing to reflect on your own practice or a leader looking to coach or guide or train colleagues, support colleagues to bring them closer to the evidence in their practice for people's ascend, then I think it's a really useful document to either frame a conversation or to be done as a bit of a written task within an inset, whatever's, whatever's most appropriate. But I'd guide people to that reflect reflection tool. That's brilliant, Gary. Thank you. Um, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you uh, again uh, for lots of chances to talk about this topic. Um, but every time you, it always kind of becomes really clear just how closely you understand this complex topic and how clearly you describe the solutions. So thank you for that. Thank you very much. It's been, been a pleasure. Thank you. So I'm delighted to introduce Rebecca Gonyo, Deputy Regional SEND Lead for the East of England and North East London for Whole School SEND. And she's also Director of Inclusion at Every Child Every Day Multi-Academy Trust. Uh, Rebecca, it's great to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and your work uh, and your many hats? Yes. Uh, I think somebody was asking me the other day, how do you do so much? 
And then I stopped to reflect and I realized I actually genuinely enjoy it. That's why it doesn't feel like work for me. Uh, fundamentally, I am an English teacher and I enjoy being in the classroom and I enjoy being part of the teaching and learning team in a school because I believe that the role of the Senko, I mean, is in, in terms of advising members of staff. So yes, I'm an English teacher, the director of inclusion, and I am part of a team of three in terms of in the east of England and northeast London team. Um, when I'm not doing all that stuff, I am a tutor for the National Senko course, and I work with Real Training and Middlesex University to support Senkos in developing their course. And uh, so for me, professional development really matters. Yeah, thank you, Rebecca. And, and actually, you had a couple more hats than I even expected. So, so yeah, I probably should repeat that question. How do you do it? Um, yeah, exactly. I, um, so I, I want to reflect on schools at the moment. And um, it's very easy to generalise. And I think that specificity and that reality is really important to to share with our listeners. So can we get a sense from your current practice? What feels like the major challenges and opportunities as well? at the moment yeah. in relation to send mainstream provision in England? I think at the moment for me, what I'm finding, especially in a secondary school setting, is that it's children are arriving to secondary school with lower than expected reading ages. So for example, each year, at least 25% of year 11 year olds do not meet their expected standards in reading at the end of primary school and fewer than 20% of these pupils are expected to access a grade you know, four at English in, in terms of GCSE. Only 10% of disadvantaged students who leave primary school with their reading ages below you know, expe ex expectations. So that's a huge, huge area of concern and a huge challenge, especially post pandemic. We are be beginning to see a lot of this. It's for the first time we are having to teach phonics in secondary school and not just one of EACP child but small groups of children who are needing to do phonics in secondary school mm -hmm. we also have so there's two fundamental things is the reading and the low reading ages but it's also students who are arriving at secondary school with a lot of social anxiety which impacts on them impacts on attendance and whether it's because the systems are getting better at identifying children with ASD and ADHD I don't know but we have an increase in the number of children at secondary school who have ASD ADHD type difficulties which are associated with social anxieties and in terms of the opportunity because it was a two-part question is in terms of the opportunities I am thinking the SEN alternative provision and improvement plans have come at a very timely time because I, if you think about the reading, you know, they have in the improvement plans, they are saying that they, you know, they will fund up to 5,000 early year staff to gain an accreditation at level three early years SENCO qualification. I am absolutely excited about this. And my understanding from the DFE is that the training is going to run until August, 2024. Uh, the opportunities in terms of the SENCO NPQ is quite interesting for me in terms of being a tutor on the SENCO course. I am interested in seeing what that brings to the role of the SENCO. The opportunities around, you know, funding for more psychologists and therapies in schools to help with the social anxieties that we are seeing. Because every school that I've spoken to have talked about the lack of EP, of the lack of speech and language therapy support in the schools to meet all these challenging needs. So yes, opportunities and challenges. Thank you. And I just want to go back. So as a former English teacher myself, when you started talking about reading, I could have, I, you know, I tuned in. It's one of the things that I look at first in terms of, you know, your ability to access the curriculum um, is often mediated by these skills. And 
And it seems like with the pandemic, but also what was happening before, um, there's just a, a wider recognition that some peoples don't quite have the, the skills to be able to access the school day in the ways that their peers have. Um, I, I want to pick up, so in terms of both the trust, but then in that broader picture in, in your other roles, mm. reading is one of those classic examples where you need some focused, high quality teaching around reading and, and in secondary schools, some of that subject specific, but you also need targeted, high quality intervention. What, what are your reflections in terms of the, the, both the challenge of reading, but the, that dynamic of teaching and high quality intervention support for pupils and maybe starting with schools in the trust and, and then maybe yeah. a bit more broadly? I think with us, within my trust, we are, we've got a bigger push towards reading and reading interventions because in order for the children to access the curriculum, they need to be able to read at that level of the curriculum. So we've got, um, at one of our schools, we've got a former primary school trained teacher who works with our transition lead and works with children who are identified. It's got to be about data driven. So very much working on the data, identifying those children right at transition stage. So at this moment, Kirsten, this is where we are looking at data, liaising with primary school same calls, and then immediately putting in interventions before they arrive in year seven. And what I quite like and I've seen as good practice is that where children arrive and it's already part of their timetable, you know, we're not talking about withdrawing children from lessons to do reading. We are talking about it being a fundamental part of the whole school approach. It's not an SEN issue, it's a whole school issue. So therefore it should be working with, so, you know, the, the, the teaching and learning team, the curriculum head, deputy head who's responsible for building the curriculum and having SEN or reading as part of the main school curriculum. So making sure that their timetable is in that way and that they're accessing reading from qualified teachers as well. There is a place for the LSA and there's a valuable place for in terms of the LSA and their role. But in this particular case, in order to have, you know, the impact that we need, it's got to be from those teachers. And also CPD in terms of making teachers understand that if you're having a child in your class who's reading at the age of a nine-year-old and they're expected to be reading at an age of an 11, 12-year-old, what does that mean for your curriculum? What does that mean for the head of department in terms of your school intent and implementations? What does that look like? So giving class teachers that understanding that if I am saying, you know, this child has a reading age of nine, how does it translate to the classroom? How does how do you then adapt your learning and teaching in order to provide for that child? Yeah, there's lots in there about that important translation and that adaptive teaching and making sure that you know, this is about all teachers having a, a real pragmatic and practical understanding of the implications, not just it's a job of somebody else somewhere else. And I think yeah. I think the one thing that point you made about data and assessment um, is an important one, because you mentioned earlier about, say, a, a phonics decoding intervention and readings that, you know, a classic complex challenge because pupils in year seven or, or mm. younger or older may have it might be a decoding issue they might lack fluency yes. it might be a, a background knowledge a language issue and and that's where assessment and, and, and good quality data is just really essential to make those good judgments for for both yes. intervention and high quality teaching Kirsten yeah, Rebecca, you've been talking about your role in SENCO training, but also in that last one you were talking about links with the teaching and learning lead in school. And, and we know that that SENCO role can look different across schools and across different phases as well. And just interested in your reflections on where you've seen that SENCO role specifically working well and what considerations perhaps there are for school leaders. In terms of where I've seen this, a lot of a lot of schools are doing, are getting it right, and they're getting a lot of aspects right. And in terms of my regional role, 
Uh, we work, I work with uh, 10 schools at a time where we bring in uh, senkos or math leads to sort of identify one specific aspect of their, of their role that they want to develop more. And I have seen commitment from school leaders, commitment from senkos to do better for their children based on their context. So there's a lot of feedback from school and there's, there are pots of good and outstanding practice. So because sometimes when we're talking about SEN and we're talking, you know, we're always looking at what can we do better and what could we do differently, but we forget to acknowledge that, you know, the Senkos are working hard and there's a lot of good practice. Where leadership teams have an understanding of SEN and an understanding of their responsibilities in terms of sections, uh, chapter six of the code of practice, that's where we see actually, you know, SEN works well and works better. Where Senkos are well supported as part of the leadership teams, is where we are seeing, you know, outstanding practice. Where SEN resources are put back into SEN, including how notional funding is distributed, you know, you will see, you know, exceptional practice going on. And, and it also clearly shows, you know, how the school is prioritizing SEN. You will see that it's working well. Where local authorities are engaging with schools and are transparent, about funding and resources and support. That's great. And, you know, as a, as a previous Senko myself, I will say, you know, you put a room of Senkos together and, and we can talk, can't we? And we need to talk because of those wide ranging, you know, things that we're, we're leading on a day-to-day -day basis. And I just wondered whether your work with Whole School Send can just speak a little bit to that networking and that, that kind of, the voice of, of sharing practice across Senkos? Yeah, because the role in terms of the regional leads and deputy regional leads with whole school is to ensure and to equip schools with the right tools to prioritize SEN. So in terms of my region, one of the key things that I, I lead on is those professional developments and Senkos bring with them a project. But what I've realized is what is so valuable is that time, the group session time, when Senkos come together and say, listen, for me, my priority this year is in is improving attendance. And then another Senko will say, listen, oh, this was my priority last year. I think we've nailed it. This is what we're doing. And I, I feel warmth in my heart when they get to a point where actually let's exchange contact details so that we can share resources so that we, we can sort of we don't have to reinvent the wheel and what I like in terms of whole school SEN you know the the learning gateway there's so many resources and CPDs and webinars where Senkos can just access and don't have to reinvent the wheel and ready-made resources so I find that Having the opportunity, what whole school SEN does is give Senkos that opportunity to come together and the research to bring, to make it easier. Because the whole idea is make it easier and accessible for Senkos to do their role. Thank you. And, and there's, there's so much in that that I know we can't get to in detail in this podcast, you know, the things that you say around, around diagnosis and, and accessing external um, professionals, um, you know, waiting lists and, and attendance and all of those, those things. And, you know, the title of this podcast is, is SEN in mainstream schools and we recognise the limitations within that. And just you mentioned the EEF guidance report there in SEND really interested in your reflections around the first two recommendations, which talk about that positive, supportive environment and also our holistic understanding of people's and their needs. And perhaps you can give us some examples of where you've seen this working particularly well. Yeah, where I feel like where there's a whole school approach to SEN you know, you see the guidance working particularly well. And I think um, I've sort of taken aspects from the FIFA day, 
that uh, focus that the ECE was using and we did a whole staff training session around that and what it means and how to ask and we were lucky because we you know got Gary to come in and and train you know staff in one of our mat days and then from there we then built a, a, like a little tool and printed out a little guide for teachers in terms of the universal offer and what five a day looks. So it's almost like having clarity for every member of staff about, you know, what good looks like and what, you know, high quality teaching look like by just using those five basic tools, you know. And then where it also works is where you have collaborative work with parents and feel and parents feel connected to the school and they know who to approach. I always say in terms of, you know, in the LSA, in terms of working with LSAs, like we allocate them key workers. And I always say to them, where the key worker is constantly communicating with parents and updating them and making sure that parents know what is happening with their child, you get very limited or no concerns or complaints from parents because all they need to know is that their child is being looked after, their, their staff in the school know what their child's needs are and they're being supported in the right way. Thank you. And you, you mentioned the, the five a day and we should mention for listeners who perhaps haven't come across that, that, that from, from the third recommendation within the guidance report, which talks about um, access to high quality teaching and these approaches such as explicit instruction, scaffolding, metacognitive approaches, flexible grouping and use of technology, particularly being um, effective for some of our pupils with SEND. And there's a lot There's a lot in that and, and clearly more information within that guidance report. And yeah, very interested in your reflections on, on families and, and the parent carer voice within, within that as well. Yeah. And fundamentally as well, I suppose, the role of the LSA within all that, you know, where do they come in and how do we measure impact? And, and there's a lot of support in terms of i mean you know research around the role of the lsa um yeah and nationally i think we've got an issue with recruiting lsas i don't know what that is about but it, it has become a huge concern there's a whole nother podcast on that a whole yes. other guidance report yeah. from EES yes, on true. teaching assistance so <laughs> we'll have to leave that one for another day yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, that, that is a challenge um, and, and one we might pick up on uh, and it might be another podcast. But I think um, I think you've posed the positives around uh, a training profile and supports that are being kind of emphasised and introduced to the system at the moment that perhaps weren't there. What stood out for me is that kind of networking you talked about and how powerful and necessary it is to come together, um, particular groups of SENCOs, but, but also those MAP school leads, um, multi-academy trust leads, because it feels like we're, we're at a point, a bit of a pinch point in the system where we've got challenges, we've got some issues and, and limitations around wider services. So schools are having to really um, play a, f a real central role to their communities, aren't they, with their pupils and families. Um, so thank you for your time. Um, it's been really positive, Rebecca. Um, keep up um, juggle your juggling act of, of all the different roles, all the different jobs. Um, and it feels like it's people like you are holding things together right now. So thank you for that. Thank you very much both. Thank you. I'm very pleased to introduce our third and final guest. It's John Eaton, who's director of Kingsbridge Research School and research lead at Kingsbridge Community College. Uh, John, can you talk a little bit more about yourself um, and your school and, and exactly where is Kingsbridge? I do know it's going to be a secret answer for, me, <laughs> for everyone else. Yeah, thank you, Alex. Um, well, my background is as an English teacher, so I think I started in 1999, something like that. Um, and I'm based at Kingsbridge Community College, which, as you said, is in the southwest, um, so it's not, not too far away from Plymouth. Um, so I would say mid, midway between Plymouth and Totnes. Um, so lovely part of the country. And it's part of a trust called Education Southwest. Um, and so my role at the moment is I'm a research lead for the trust. 
Um, so I do a lot of school improvement work with um, trust leads and, and head teachers. Um, I work closely with uh, Teaching School Hub, SWIFT. And since um, 2019, I've been director of Kingsbridge Research School. So in that capacity, work with schools across the Southwest to put evidence into practice. That's brilliant. And I think unwittingly, um, Rebecca's a, an English teacher, you're an English teacher, Gary's a drama teacher. I think we've created, I'm an ex-English teacher, I think we've created a bit of a department um, feel. Um, yeah. Personally, don't you <laughs> feel I, I excluded with science your science in, background? You? Yes. <laughs> I do like I, science. I will try and adapt like, accordingly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent, and, and we do. We want we want you to talk a bit about adaptive teaching. Um, I'm, I'm sure we'll do a link, but you've written um, some really powerful writing about adaptive teaching that I know has been really well received. Um, uh, blog on the EF that's had a huge huge amount of engagement. Just before we we dive into that specificity, John, can we talk a little bit about just um, down in Kingsbridge, and it, and it might be you know some of the work you've done with with schools a bit more broadly um down there on the on the south in the southwest but can you just give a sense of what are the current challenges and and opportunities when it comes to you know issues that attend uh, challenges supports that attend send in mainstream um at the minute yeah um so off the top of my head it's probably not comprehensive but i would say the things that leap out working with schools in the region tend to be uh, attendance features really highly on the agenda um I think things like social and emotional um, difficulties, some of which are inevitably linked to COVID and school closures, but not, you know, some of that was also around beforehand, I think. And then the, the third one that sort of leaps out would be um, schools struggling with diminishing resources and support. So, you know, when, yeah. when there are problems with um, things like, I don't know, it could be behavior or social emotional leads, um, there's, it's very difficult for schools to find adequate support. So I think that's those are the kind of top three that leap out to me, I think. Yeah, it's really, uh, I think that picture is a kind of a, a common picture of, of some of the issues we describe. And and you talked about there the interrelated factors. So some yeah. of those services, supports, there's a post-COVID reality that it's hard to pin down exactly what's causal, causal and, and what might correlate with some of those school challenges. But there seems to be a, a clear pattern here. Kirsten? Yeah, and I, I guess picking up on that and, and wanting all of our children in the classroom, wanting to ensure pupils have access to that high quality teaching. Alex referenced your guest blog for EEF around adaptive teaching, which has had huge readership. And it, I guess through the early career framework, national professional qualifications, where that term is used for you know ad adaptive teaching, you know, it'd be really interesting to get your perception of what that means for you in your trust. Um, I know you've done a lot of, of thinking about that more widely, but um, yeah, if you could talk us through some of your your work in this, that would be great. Yeah, thanks, Kirsten. Um, I, I guess I should preface it by saying, you know, I, I view myself as somebody who's also trying to understand what adaptive teaching is. So this is very much a uh, a bit of an implementation journey, so I don't want to sort of set myself up as an adaptive teaching expert or anything like that, but I think um, what I can do is talk about what we've done in our trust, mm. and part of that has been trying to understand um, what it is. I think the whole thing started for me with somebody in the trust asking, you know, what do we know about adaptive teaching? This has suddenly turned up or got prominence on the ECF and, uh, and so on, like you said. Um, and then that led probably to a little bit of initial head-scratching, like what exactly is it you know it, we, and my starting point being the director of the research school is obviously to to dig into the um, evidence base um and also kirsten prompted by your blog on adaptive teaching which was you know i think a really helpful starting point as well so i think you know the good thing is it appears to be what it says on the tin so it sort of passes that ron seal test of you know it is about adapting instruction in response to information you have about students which is um you know good news i think in that sense it's perhaps clearer than differentiation as a term um it's more just you know it's more helpfully descriptive of what it is um and i think you can you know you can see why it's valuable by imagining what it would be like if we didn't adapt instruction I, and i kind of occurred to me the other day that thinking back in my career as a novice teacher, I was certainly guilty of that at certain points. 
um, almost kind of pressing ahead with lessons or with a lesson plan, regardless of probably pretty strong indications that things weren't going as planned. Um, but being a novice teacher, you know, maybe it's a lack of background knowledge or not having a plan B. It was quite difficult to do that. So I think it's a good, you know, there's a sort of inbuilt rationale for doing it that if we adapt instruction, then we are better able to meet students' particular needs. So there's a, you know, pretty clear rationale for it. And like I said, not if you picture not doing it, um, it's a bit like, um, you know, setting your cruise control for 70 on the road and then not adapting to um, the wall of headlights in front of you. You know, you're literally not going to get very far um, behaving like that. So there's a very good reason for doing it. That's great. And yeah, that posing what happens if we don't adapt is a really helpful, helpful frame for us to think around that. And I wonder if you can paint a bit of a picture for our listeners about what adaptive teaching looks like when it's done well. Take us for a walk around Kingsbridge or, or one of the other schools. Are there are there things that kind of exemplify the best of what you can see when it's working well? Um, yeah, I'd say the, the best is the the best examples of adaptive teaching are they're extremely attentive to understanding student needs. I guess is how I'd characterise it. Um, that it's about not waiting till after the lesson to find out that things have gone wrong. Um, it's about looking for them all all the time. So being really attentive to um, barriers that emerge during the lesson uh, and actively seeking to find that out as well through good assessment. And, I, and by assessment, I don't just mean, you know, end of unit, high stakes tests. I mean, things like hinge questions, questioning in class, um, you know, whiteboard responses, that sort of thing. Um you, you see it, for example, in P. I think is a is a good example where performance often leads to almost immediate adaptation. So maybe an extra layer of scaffolding, maybe a kind of debrief before students try a, a, a skill again. Um, I think the same is probably the case with things like phonics instruction as well, where it's at, you know constantly seeking information and making adjustments on the, on the back of that. Um, my colleague in the research school, actually, Helen Thornycroft, is, a, is a, I think, is a really good example. She's um, head of history at Kingsbridge Community College. And um, she's just somebody who kind of relentless, that whole department relentlessly tries to identify barriers. So looking at things like, you know, what, what implicit um, knowledge do we need to unearth? Uh, what kind of strategies, what metacognitive strategies are required to, to perform this task that maybe we can make a bit more over and a bit more explicit? So I think their example is a, their department is a really good example of a department that just constantly um, has this sort of attitude that none must escape, which sounds maybe a little bit negative. But um, I must understand what the barriers are so that we can so that we can address them all the time. And I, I guess that kind of links to recommendation two, I think, in the send guidance around building that holistic understanding of pupils and their needs. So just relentlessly trying to understand what are the needs. Um, and and designing, um, you know, assessment activities that can unearth that or make it a bit more overt. Can I just pick that up, John? So I think when we start thinking about, we start thinking about the definition of adaptive teaching, there's obviously a lot of interest. We start thinking about what practice looks like. Quite clearly, if we're trying to help colleagues understand something that's complex, potentially valuable, it requires a lot of knowledge building. So can you tell us a little bit more about how amongst staff in the school and trust, how you've tried to build knowledge um, with colleagues around adaptive teaching? Yeah, that's, it's quite a challenging thing, I think. Um, and again, I'm not pretending that I've got all the answers to that, but I can say what we've done so far and what we're, what we're trying to do. Um, the first thing was we made it a collaborative process and we've made it a slow process of steadily trying to build knowledge and understanding rather than kind of rushing into um, specifying particular approaches. So I think that's that's important. Um, so initially, I worked with heads and middle leaders to arrive at a, a trust definition um, or maybe a trust description of what it is, which is almost like a set of um, behaviours. And again, this is just what we've come out with. I'm not saying this is the, you know, the kind of gold standard. So there are things like, off the top of my head, um, identifying um, barriers to so using assessment to identify barriers to learning, 
maintaining high expectations that is, is not driven by labels, but views labels as flags indicating possible needs. Um, things like adapting, planning prior to the lesson, um, adapting practice during the lesson. And we've tried to kind of go from that point into exemplifying what, what exactly that might look like. So when you're anticipating barriers, what might that mean? That might mean um, thinking about the vocabulary that students might encounter in a text or the particular bit of background knowledge they need to access a um, you know classroom discussion or whatever it might be. Um, but then we've also, um, as part of that description, we've kept an explicit link to uh, to send as well. And so that may include the provision of different resources and teaching materials and strategies. So almost drawing on Nason's, um, a bit of research we looked at uh, from Nason. So we're not kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying this completely replaces differentiation um, and that idea of generating different worksheets of different pupils. So, we, you know, we've tried to address differentiation head on, I think, and say, look, this is we're arriving at a definition that's perhaps moving away from the baggage associated with differentiation where where we're looking at unhelpful um you know resource generation for, for example uh, but we've got to remember that for some pupils that's still really important um so i guess the next point from collaboratively building that that des description of what it looks like um i came up with a model um which is an attempt to bridge theory and practice a little bit. So it's meant to be helpful enough to be a sort of starting point. So helpful enough to guide teachers about how they should act in the classroom without over-specifying particular approaches. So a bit like a, um, well, let's give it an English slant since we're all English teachers, um, a kind of PPEE uh, -E type paragraph where we know it's flawed. It's not perfect, but it's a, it's a useful starting point. So it's almost like that kind of booster rockets. It will get you so far, but then hopefully they fall away and, you know, you you start to elaborate on that yourself. Um, so the aim of the model is to help teachers conceptualise what it is, um, which I think is valuable because there's a danger that adaptive teaching could be a kind of everything framework, if you like. It can sort of explain everything and therefore nothing. Um, but it's also meant to guide action as well. So when it says things like anticipate barriers, you know, what I've tried to do there is, is indicate what that might mean in your context. Or if we talk about lesson adaptations, again, I've tried to indicate or exemplify, let's say, uh, what that could mean. So that might mean um, think about rephrasing a question, for example, or uh, improving the accessibility by moving a student in the classroom. Or, you know, there's a whole, there's a massive range of things that could be. Um, and then the next step would probably be thinking about this at department level. So what does this mean in English? What does this mean in, in maths? I think that's really helpful. I think the, there's something about, there is almost an umbrella term here with, with implications across domains and subjects, but also that last point about specificity in subject domains. So what... What do scaffolds look like? What does explicit teaching look like? What does flexible grouping look like? Because if it's yeah, yeah. a group discussion in English, it's a bit different. If it's the right, that, that writing task. So you talked about PEE paragraphs or PEEL or PETHEL or whatever the latest iteration is. Yeah. And I, I, I've noted there's been a lot of debate about those. I've read research um, from people in the field talking about kind of theorizing that it's a limitation, you know, trying to enforce a kind of um, a bit of a, a limited mode of reading. But actually, most teachers who've used that model know that it's a temporary scaffold. And we also know that some pupils, particularly struggling writers, really do need some very basic scaffolds. And I think perhaps the P or Peel model is a good example of the nuance that needs to be embraced and with adaptive teaching and that it's not about a tool or a worksheet and it's about real careful thinking about the adaptation of resource you know teachers pupils knowledge being a resource and that the you know use the taking away the specificity with individuals and groups it just seems to be yeah more complex and a richer debate than we sometimes see which is you know, differentiation is bad, 
adaptive teaching is good. Yeah. This approach is bad. This is good. Well, for some pupils, that adaptive approach seems really necessary. And we've got to think carefully about a group of 25 about all the kind of their variety in there. So there's not easy answers here, is there? Kind of, if I was to try and synthesize no. it. Yeah, I, t- um, I totally agree with that. With the with the peel paragraph thing, for example, that um, that's exactly it. It's a temporary scaffold, isn't it? And what it's doing is addressing a barrier. And the barrier might be, for example, that the cognitive load of having to structure a paragraph and reflect on the content that goes in the paragraph is too much. Yeah. And so that scaffold yeah. removes the cognitive load of structuring yeah. temporarily so that you can focus on the content, but it's not intended to stay there. And yes, it will be a limitation in itself, of course. Like if you decide to always wear armbands when swimming, that will inevitably be a, a limitation. That's that's a really good example. I now want to pursue that um, analogy, <laughs> but I don't know quite how to. I don't. It's think probably best not to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's being an English teacher. You know, if I was a PE teacher, maybe I'd just be able to to hook on to, uh, a nice spin off there. Um, I just want to talk then having engaged with colleagues and we've just talked about complexity, we've just talked about kind of some of these simple notions, differentiation, bad, adaptive teaching, good, and, and some of these caricatures. How have colleagues responded to adaptive teaching as an approach? Have they responded to the training and development? And has it motivated changes that you've detected and observed? Yeah, I'd say there's um enthusiasm for for sure so i think we've definitely got good feedback that it's helped them conceptualize what it is so just having that having a model even if it's imperfect at least enables useful conversation about where it's imperfect we got really helpful feedback from one middle leader um that when we're talking about um, identifying or anticipating barriers that we don't unintentionally lead um, particularly new teachers to assume that anything difficult is a barrier and then remove desirable difficulty, you know, we're actually be sort of defeating the purpose. So, but the, the model allowed that sort of conversation, if you like, because it kind of broke it into steps. Um, so we've been, yeah, the I'd say where we're at at the moment is we've got that model. We've, we're trying to get it into the trust. We've done, um, like I said, it started with head teachers, middle leaders. We've done training with um, teachers at all schools. Um, and that's probably gotten to the point where they're looking at that description of what adaptive teaching is. And they've been introduced to the model. And we've been able to put together some exemplification, some examples, non-examples of, of what adaptive teaching is. Um, many examples from my own experience to draw on. Like I said, if you if you kind of think back in your career where you kind of rigidly stuck to lesson plans, Um because of not having that kind of plan B. The good thing about adaptive teaching is I think it's quite cohering in terms of it shines a light on formative assessment. So it's very good at giving a very strong rationale for having good assessment practices. Because again, if you don't, if you're not unearthing good information about pupil needs and barriers, then how do you know what to adapt to in the first place? Um, And I think it helps you helps teachers sort of broaden their conception of barriers to, to include things like learning behaviors. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very reasonable to assume that a particular learning behavior could be a barrier, especially if it remains, let's say you're doing discussion task and, um, it, you know, it could be that some of the useful ways of engaging in discussion remain implicit. Um, and so we, you know, if you, if you've kind of got in your head that when the, even if you just scan your lesson plan and think, what am I asking students to do? What am I asking them to produce? Okay, what could be a barrier to that? That's quite a helpful thought, I think. So if I'm asking them to engage in this discussion, well, actually, what learning behaviours will they need to engage in that discussion, such as, you know, politely disagreeing with people or building on somebody else's ideas? Do they actually know what that looks like? Um, same with metacognition as well, I think. It can just help flag up um, potential barriers. Thanks, John. And I, I think you, you reflect on the kind of the collaborative approach and that star PD that you've threaded through in, in as well as really exemplifying it helpfully, like this idea of, of non-examples as well, really sharing that, that expertise and building the knowledge. A little, a short, snappy one to finish our, our um, interview then. So one thing that perhaps you'd like a busy school leader to think about in terms of adaptive teaching um it's hard, hard to narrow it down to one thing but I, I think it just I guess it sort of sums up what I've been saying really but 
I think from a school leader perspective, um, I think hard around whether school data and assessment systems usefully inform lesson adaptations. So, you know, does the information you're passing to teachers about pupils with SEND um, enable them to make helpful adaptations or not? Or is it very kind of broad? So is it things like, um, you know, you might be communicating reading ages, but that doesn't really, that's, that's very difficult for me as a teacher to think. Um, it, it, it's hard for me to adapt to that. Whereas something like, even even knowing this is a comprehension rather than decoding issue is useful. I can, you know, it gives me a starting point. Um, the other thing is, I think I'd encourage them to focus on that because it's a bit of a reminder that curriculum is not the solution to everything in itself. And I think there's, you know, we're in a sort of period where it can appear that way. Um, but it's also about the pedagogy that can make adaptations to enable access to that curriculum. It, it kind of goes hand in hand with, with that, I think. That, I think that's a good point, John, in terms of kind of winding it up to that notion of curriculum and our conception of how people's access to the curriculum. You can still have sky high expectations of what pupils can access, but they need a stepped approach to get there. And I think for me, adaptive teaching offers an acceptable, still challenging, but but useful um, framework from that from that one phrase we can kind of build on and build around where other phrases we've used in the past maybe bring so much baggage um, their way down a little. So I think it's a good point to end. It's an optimistic end, I think. I, I love the specificity you brought to adaptive teaching, the positivity in your school and trust. And, and I think that's been writ large um, from lots of school leaders and teachers around the country that there's an opportunity here. Um, so let's seize that opportunity. Thanks again, John, for your time. Well, thank you very much. So Kirsten, just time for us to reflect and Having heard all of those insights from Gary, Rebecca and John, um, I, I think my synthesis, the point that's just um, leaping out for me is about this opportunity for amidst all the challenges and amidst this kind of complex national picture post-COVID, all, all of those problems that we all recognise and, and lots of school leaders and teachers are right in the middle of. I think for me, what's our opportunities for, for teachers around that adaptive teaching, how it was manageable and meaningful, and, and that five a day that, that Gary talked about. And it, it feels like for me, I've sometimes felt a little bit separate and, and a bit worried about sending mainstream and that it was other people knew more than I did. And But what I got from, from those interviews was that actually there were teaching strategies here that with careful forethought about the pupils you're teaching and those sensitive adaptations, actually really high quality teaching is within all of our grasp what, what was your reflection yeah reflecting on those rich discussions it really shone a light on on opportunities I think just listening to these busy school leaders and really wanting schools to work for all pupils I think Gary said that and, and that really shone shone through for me and this you know the idea of of effective professional development and really thinking carefully about SEND within that, not as an additional add-on, but threaded through our, our teaching and learning conversations, this collaborative process. And, and I think Rebecca touched on the, the SENCO networking and, and sharing of that practice, that idea of demystifying SEND, you know, it's not, not being this, this thing that's so technical we can't understand, but bringing people together to move things forward for pupils in our schools. That feels like a, a great final word, that kind of demystifying send and seizing those opportunities. Uh, thank you, Kirsten. And, and just remains to me to say thank you again to all of our guests. And thank you for listening um, and, and weaving your way through this podcast episode. If you want to hear more, of course, you can subscribe. And we'd be delighted if you felt you could share this podcast as well. It might be teacher colleagues. It might be people who are just interested in this area or researchers indeed. Um, but just remain safe. Thank you. And hopefully we'll see you again on the EEF podcast, Evidence Into Action. Bye.